many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is. The return to glory. McDavid stops up. What a move. Shoots. Scores! Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. 2020. Boy, did that last year go by fast, Robin? Holy cow. Yeah, it did. I, I... I remember my dad saying, as you get older, the years go by a lot quicker. And I used to think that's not possible. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It certainly is. Anyway, here we go. This is our uh, first episode for the new year, 2020. And it's, uh, it's a fun one for us because you and I have known Ken Lowe and Barry Stafford for a very, very long time. Two people with a lot of history, oh. a lot of great stories to tell. After all the years they spent, in Kenny's case, with the Edmonton Eskimos and the Edmonton Oilers. In Barry's case, the longtime trainer uh, for the Oilers, the equipment manager, I should say, and a former University of Alberta Golden Bear. When you go back this far, there's stories to tell. Okay, so for Ken Lowe, briefly, Grey Cup, Eskimo history, uh, Stanley Cup history. Also was, uh, you know, I, I'm sure he went to a, a few world hockey championships mm-hmm. and probably won at that level. Went to the Olympics and represented Canada. Uh, 2002 was part of that squad yep. that won the gold medal finally for Team Canada in Salt Lake City. It's uh, a huge, huge resume for Ken Lowe. Also in the Hall of Fame in terms of athletic therapists and training staff. Yes. Barry Stafford also in the Hall of Fame in the same category. Yes. Barry Stafford, CIS, way back then it would have been a CIAU championship. Mm-hmm. So he played at the university level. Then, of course, uh, we'll get into it with him about how he got to the Edmonton Oilers, and he went through all five of those Stanley Cup championships. And then he follows right along the same route as Ken Lowe with uh, trips to the World Hockey Championships, trips to, well, I think he's even a Spengler Cup winner, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, back in the day. It's uh, these two guys, I'm telling you, it's uh, it's a pleasure to know them. They've got a million stories, and we're happy to have them with us to tell us a few of those stories. Well, what do you say? Let's go. Yeah, let's roll, shall we? Guys, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, great to have you two guys in here that both Robin and I know so well. And uh, were we at a golf tournament, Staffy, when you said, hey, we got we to get, get on the podcast and have some fun? Was that you that said that to me? Yes, it was. I, I you know, podcasts <laughs> are the thing to do, and, and uh, very happy to hear that you guys were together doing it. So we just wanted to be part of it. Great. At what point did you hear doing this would be fun? Uh, hey, anytime I can hang out with my good buddy, Kenny Lowe, uh, it's fun. So brother from another mother, of course. Hey, let's, before we start talking about uh, the achievements for you guys are endless and we could spend 40 minutes just talking about all of your achievements, but let's, let's go back to how you got going a little bit and Staffy, we'll start with you first and foremost. We, how you, you knew slats in Banff. Is that how things kind of got rolling for you with the Oilers? Yeah. I was a young guy. Um, Banff's a very small town, and Glen Sather had a hockey school. Uh, we didn't really know Glen Sather at the time, but uh, we were just young kids, and everybody 
almost everybody that played hockey went to his hockey school. And, um, you know, as we progressed over the years, um, I eventually started working for him um, as, a, as a counselor for the kids. And um, that, that was my experience with Glenn. That's how I got to know him and meet him. And then, you know, I went off and tried, tried to seek my, uh, my, my fortune in the hockey world. <laughs> and um, ended, I ended up in university uh, playing hockey here in Edmonton for the Golden Bears. And uh, at the time, um, before graduating, I, I sent some resumes out and I sent one to the Oilers. And, of course, with the relationship with Glenn, uh, they, they needed a trainer at the time, the, um, Kamloops, I believe, Blazers. And so I applied, and he knew my family, and he knew that I was a hockey player and, you know, uh, those kind of things. So I went in and interviewed, and I got the job. I have to ask, because you talked about those hockey schools in Banff, there's that story about Ryan Smith getting run over by somebody. Who ran him over? Andy. in the, was, who, was it Glenn Anderson that did that? Yeah, it was Glenn Anderson. I think, I think that was the 80, our 84 Canada Cup training camp. And okay. Once again, growing up in Banff as a small town, I knew uh, the Smith family quite well, Ryan's mom and dad. And uh, I knew Ryan. Ryan was just a young kid. I forget how old he was, 10 or 12, but he was, uh, he was a good kid and he was a rink rat. And he still is a rink rat to this day. But uh, So we wherever we went, we always needed stick boys and kids that were – you know, especially hanging around the rink. And so I just, uh, I brought him in to help us out as a stick boy. Barry, I got to ask, because it just slides off your tongue so quick. If you can play hockey for the Alberta Golden Bears, you can play hockey. Uh, Very few people reach that level. What's the difference between Barry Stafford, the hockey player, and the guys good enough to go on to the level that you ended up working with for your whole career? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to have played, you know, I don't take it lightly. I mean, I was lucky. I was on a great team. I uh, came along at a good time. Our team had won three championships uh, in a row. And although the first year I, because I had a knee injury, I only played a few games the first year. But I was part of a dynasty, really, with Claire Drake. And just not understanding at the time how important um, my and how what influence Claire Drake and Billy Moore's had on my life and all and the lives of all our players um, so there, there's similarities to me as a hockey player um, some of the, the better qualities I had as, as a player uh, transferred into and helped me in my job uh, working with hockey players although I, I never played in the NHL I never coached a game in the NHL but I, I did have a bit of a hockey player mentality in the in the early stages, but uh, at the same time, it did get me in trouble a few times early on because uh, it took me a while to actually get it, you know, get into the the thinking and the and the philosophies of, of what a uh, what a trainer really does, and um, you know, I learned to curb my enthusiasm, my temper, and aggressive nature i mean when you're a young guy and you have a bad temper and you're an aggressive person that's okay when you're on the ice but it doesn't work too well when you're when you're um you know working as a trainer in the nhl now ken in your situation you did the football route before you did the hockey route so how did you get hooked up with the edmonton eskimos and then how did you do that transition from the eskimos and winning great cups over to the oilers uh, one of the ways was uh, I was looking to to, uh, to do my master's 
I don't know why I wanted to do a master. I thought it was important. And my younger brother knew that uh, U of A had a program. And uh, they were looking, they would be looking for a trainer. And uh, uh, so uh, I sent my resume uh, to uh, to Hugh Campbell. And, right. And uh, I got, got hired. But uh, it was interesting because uh, the one thing Hugh Campbell said to me that, that it was really impressed, and I can't remember the... Uh, the young player's name who passed away in 81 after a great cup. He was killed in a car accident. Is that uh, Don Warrington? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. He was really, he, Hugh had told me he was really impressed that both Kevin and, and Wayne at that point, Kevin's roommate had showed up as his funeral. Wow. And, and it, that was really impressed Hugh. And that, that's why Hugh sort of like looked at me, but he said at the same time, he said, you know, having your brother uh, is detrimental to you getting the job. And I'm sitting there here in Edmonton. I'm going, why is that? And he said, because I, I sense you and your brother are very close. And uh, what goes on in the Eskimo dressing room stays in the Eskimo dressing room. <laughs> and I said, as a trainer, we know that many years, have learned that many years ago. How I got over the Eskimos was uh, this right-hand man of mine, or as he calls me, my brother from another mother. Uh, <laughs> I knew that Peter Miller was leaving. Peter had told me about a month in advance that he was he was he was going. He was leaving. He didn't tell me where he was going, but that he was was leaving. I think we were at the CAT. Oh, you're t- you're talking about how you came to the Oilers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. The transition. Cool. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, uh, so I knew that Peter was leaving, and but I never thought of myself moving over the Oilers. Uh, I like football, and to this day, I, I tell people if you take a garbage bag and you throw hockey injuries and soccer injuries and basketball injuries and baseball injuries, give it, give it a good shake and you have football. And and from a trainer, athletic, athletic trainer's perspective, that's a challenge. And uh, uh, But Barry phoned me. I remember it was a Friday afternoon. I was up uh, doing my hedge, hedges, and, and uh, <laughs> I was just about to go to training camp with my, my ninth training camp of the Eskimos. And uh, Barry phoned me and said uh, he had some names of people that, uh, that he'd like to bring, he'd talk, see, see him about, ask him, come and see me about them and, and I said sure not once did I realize he was reeling me in and uh, he gave me a couple names and I can to this day I can't remember what the, who they were but and at the very end he says but you well, remembered you were doing the hedges what's that I remember I was doing the hedges <laughs> yes I remember how to get them done because I'm going hey once you once you hit training camp, oh yeah, yeah more time yeah. and uh and he threw it at me and, and what about you and I was taken back a little bit because I did like football and uh, I said let me think about it and then I phoned my younger brother and uh, I said uh, Kevin how would you like your, your brother be your trainer and he said I, I was hoping you'd take it and I figured oh he reeled me <laughs> and, uh, and so I moved over there and I'm so glad that I did it was a great move I didn't be, I had known Barry before that but we've come be, become a great great friend personal friend now yeah now, correct me if I'm wrong, Kenny. I just saw a clip this morning. Did Kevin refer to you as, uh, as when you were breaking into the uh, training trade, as practicing on him a yeah. little bit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I found that you wouldn't need to practice with Kevin uh, the way he played the game as things would go in his career. Tell us about that. Are we talking you were a raw kid going into the training game and you'd tape him up or what? Yeah, basically that's what I do. Try, come home and try tape jobs on him, mostly the ankle because an ankle is a, 
is a tough job and, and uh, it's a skill that most ATs are really good at. And, and so I would come home and, and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> practice on them, that and the wrist jobs and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I guess uh, I, for, I forget that now, but uh, w- once he brought it up, oh, yes, <laughs> have him sit on the uh, picnic table out back of the pool and, and taping his ankle and stuff like that. That's 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 going way way back, but you know when you ask me, you know how I got here, I think a lot of it was instrumental to him, uh, you know, knowing that uh, I wanted to do my masters, I wanted to to get out of Quebec at the situation at that point. I, I loved my job; I was the head AT at Concordia University, and uh, you know here was an opportunity, uh, you know, to to come to Alberta to work for the Eskimos and to do my masters, which I did. And finished, and then uh, from that, uh, Barry lassoed me into moving over to the Oilers. Let's talk about the the run with the Oilers. Now, Kenny, you came in at the the tail end of that while you had gone through the major part with the Edmonton Eskimos. And Staffy, you're right there from the get go uh, as as they were getting rolling. That was a special group in that room, and we can open this up, and you guys can just jump all over each other, however you want to answer these questions. But at what point? Did you always sense that the room had something special going on in there? Like there just always seemed to be, you know, you can walk into a room and you just know it's got a successful feeling about it. Kenny, when you dropped in there, did you feel that? And Barry, when did you start to sense that that was going to be happening? I'll jump in first and let Barry take over because he was through the whole five of them. But one thing that Kevin had said, and I remember him saying this, is that, that they learned how to win from the Eskimos. They learned that relationship. Uh, uh, I think if you remember, they always had the grand night, that Monday night, how everyone had to show up after a game on Sunday. All the Eskimos had to show up. And they had the dunce cap, and they had all that. And they made it such a reunion, not a union, but such a union, that when Kevin spoke at the 2000 uh, induction into the uh, team's uh, induction into, the, I think it was the Sports Alberta Hall of Fame, Kevin did say that, that that they learned to to develop as a team through watching the Eskimos. And, and I'll, I'll let, let Barry take over because he was there for the whole five of them. But that's that's one thing I always remember. Do you remember a moment, Staffy, where you went, this is, there's something, well, of course you had Wayne, but, you know, you have to put all the other pieces of the puzzle together, and that's not easy. But can you kind of pinpoint maybe where you thought, I think I can feel something really special going on here? Well, I, I think... What you have to look at is the foundation of the team and the core group of players that we had there. And <clears throat> I, I firmly believe that. I mean, Glenn was the was the the architect or the patriarch of the the dynasty, and he's the one that uh, knew how to manage the the personalities. But the 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 one foundation of all those guys, the key people in that group, from Wayne to Mark to Paul to you know Charlie Huddy, Doctor Greg, um, Grant, Andy, all those guys. The core group of that team was was the was their families. Um, you know, they all grew up in good families. They all had good parents, and uh, you know, at the time you're growing up, you don't think about that. But um, you know, it had a huge influence on all those guys, the character of those people. And back in that day, families were included in 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 a lot of the activities that we did around the city. Uh, it, would, it would be You'd regularly see uh, uh, Paul's dad would come in from Toronto, or Mark's Mark's brother would be around, or Mark's family was very close. And uh, uh, you know, we in Vancouver we'd spend time with Glenn Anderson's mom and dad at the rink, and 
it just it was a family atmosphere and the character of the people. I think it was the perfect storm in that respect. Um, although everyone has their own personality and their own family, but there were so many things in common, um, and uh, it, it, the character of the people was it was the key to that. And then they they just kind of grew and learned off each other. And Glenn was sort of the the conductor of the whole group. I'll take that even further. Okay. That, uh, <clears throat> and taking it from one of the ass is my mom would always be, Kevin always made sure mom came to everything. And she, he and uh, she and Betty Coffee became very good friends. Well, Betty Coffee was at my daughter's uh, <clears throat> graduation, not graduation, when she was baptized. So that goes back to show you how close <laughs> the relationship was. Uh, you know, we we met B- Betty at, at uh, Amanda's uh uh, first, not first, she was first communion, but that era uh, when she was baptized. So I just, I, I, I just kind of, to answer your question, um, you know, I came in as a young guy, and, I, and the team was very successful. Um, and you know, I just kind of learned through the law of the wolf pack, just to shut up and watch, yeah. watch and learn. And but uh, I think it was after the. Um, the Islanders, you know, the, the the infamous four, you know, when we lost the Islanders. Yep. That the next year, the start of the next season, um, and it was very distinct, this distinct memory in my mind. And this is to answer your question about when did I think something special was going to happen. Is um, we the first game against the Islanders the year after they had beaten us. Mark was... Um, facing off against Brian Trotche. And at the time, Brian Trotche was the, you know, arguably one of the best players in the game, one of the best leaders in the game, very respected guy, hardworking guy. And he was, it was, there's no doubt, the leader of the Islanders dynasty team. And uh, Mark was facing off against Brian Trotche. And as soon as the puck was dropped, he cross-checked him in the head. He cross-checked him in the, in the shoulders, knocked him right down to his knees. And, um, you know, it was it was it was scary to see, but but that was the turning point for me. I, I thought, well, these guys better be ready because this group of guys, they're they've come into their own and they we're on a mission. And to me, that's when I started really started paying attention and understanding that you know things were going to change. You know, it's interesting as as an outsider. I'm from Vancouver. What I knew of the Oilers is they would come into Pacific Coliseum and beat the Canucks for fun. Um, and who's this little Gretzky guy that nobody can seem to hit? I got here in 89 in time for that last cup run. But when I look at those teams, at least for somebody my age, I can't think of a greater team of assembled individuals that went on to team success. I mean, you had the best player in the game. You maybe had the second best player in the game in Messier. You had the best defenseman. You can go right down the list. Um, that doesn't get necessarily guarantee success. Looking from afar, I was wondering, what is this Glenn Sather doing to keep everything together, handling the group? The players play the game. I get that. But how big a hand was – you touched on it, uh, Barry – just Glenn's way of knowing how to bring out the best in people, uh, have them play for each other, their strengths, cover up the weaknesses. How big a hand did Glenn have? Because he sure had a lot of talent to work with, but it guarantees nothing. Well, let Kenny weigh in first. 
when he uh, because we obviously Ken knew Glenn and we you know Ken used to hang around the dressing room with us with Kevin so to his point we were all very good friends Dwayne Mandrusiak and the training staff were closely together so Kenny was around the team quite a bit before uh, he came to work with us but then you know uh, then he experienced it full hand when when he became a staff member and uh, you know people in pro sports and on a team like we had or NHL team, uh, CFL team, NFL, work very, very closely together. Um, and there's no secrets behind the, you know, behind the dressing room door. But Kenny, uh, just kind of uh, to answer uh, Robin's question about, you know, after spending a little bit of time with Glenn and then getting immersed in the Glenn Sather culture, I'd like to hear your, your comments <laughs> on, on that. We went yes, from Glenn, Glenn is a very good friend of ours, and he was a mentor to I'm sure both of us. But just to get Kenny's views on you know once you're you're, uh, you're in the trenches with the guy, it was said, and 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 I think it was my brother who said it. He said it was it was John Muckler who had the mind of the game, and uh, he says we probably don't win without John. But but Glenn was uh, he kept everyone close. You know, uh, you know, he reminded me of is Norm Kimball. Okay, he okay. reminded me so much of Norm Kimball. I've, I've always said I was lucky to work with two of the greatest general managers in the game in hockey and football. And he, the th- one thing I'll always say about Glenn, okay, is that he was so intense when it was game, but the day after he was gone. Didn't matter what happened, stuff like that. He had a smile on his face and let's move on. And 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 that's one thing that I really appreciated Glenn and and I I felt that Glenn was like Glenn was everyone's dad okay he taught those guys how to how to dress you know he taught them when to go out you you didn't you did not celebrate uh, in Edmonton the night after you lose a hockey game okay and that's the sort of things and Barry will be able to explain more being with them but that's how I saw slats you know as, as as being a father figure to all of them Got to ask this from two different perspectives because you you guys had two different jobs inside that locker room, and we'll start with uh, with you, Kenny. Uh, you had on the football team Danny Ray Kepley, who uh, wow, as tough as they come, tough as nails. But you had some you had some tough guys on that Oilers squad when you were there. Can you compare the two, and who who were the tough toughest guys of them all? when you were with the Oilers in particular? I know it sounds prejudiced, but I'll have to say my younger brother. Uh, yep. What he played through, uh, many times I say he was uh, uh, foolish beyond the, beyond the doubt with what he was <laughs> playing with. But when I looked further ahead, there was Danny Ray Kepley, and there was no one who was tougher, meaner than anyone. And, and Danny, Danny Ray Kepley was the godfather of that team, okay? And I remember <laughs> this little story about Danny, his, my rookie season. And Danny has, was playing with a dislocated shoulder. He had dislocated his shoulder training camp. And he was popping it in and out himself. And whenever I'd go talk to doctors about it, they, they, would, they, they would go and talk to him. And he, they'd come back and say, Danny says, I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. He called me the kid. He said, the kid doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Halfway through the season, if you remember, we're down. We're t- uh, two and five, I think it is. And uh, Danny's struggling. And uh, Hugh Campbell comes in and sits down with Dr. Dick Cherry and I and, and, and talks to us about Danny Ray, about his shoulder. And he asks us, <clears throat> did you think is, give him a couple weeks to, to 
time off to get the shoulder strong would be helpful for him. We said, well, absolutely. You can get some of the swelling down, maybe some of the strength back down. In the, and so Hugh got up and looked at us. He said, okay, you tell him. He walked out. <laughs> January, January kept. He never missed the game. So from a football's perspective, the toughest was Danny. There's no one who came closer. And he led by, by example. And then I look in hockey and I say, you know, Kevin was really tough with some of the, some of the things that he played with. Uh, Jason Smith, there's, there's no question he, was, he ranks right up there. And, and, and Ryan Smith, Smitty, he played with a hell of a, a heck of a lot. You know, he, shot, he broke his ankle and he, we had him on skates 12 days later. You know, uh, sure, uh, that's with the doctors and everything we're doing, but that involves a lot of toughness. Well, I, and when I worked with you guys uh, in my time with the Oilers, Mike Greer always used to surprise me because he had that wonky shoulder and you would stand in that hallway and staff, you can jump in on this too, because you've seen it. He would, he would come off the ice and he'd be, he'd be have that, he'd be favoring that shoulder. And I'd watch him go down that hallway into the locker room. And one of the doctors would follow him in and he'd go right into the training room. And I tried not to hear any sounds and he would come out like he was the $6 million man had been refixed, went out, and he would just go out and bang guys again. And it just seemed that that team, while it wasn't successful in terms of wins and losses, man, they were some tough guys there then. Yeah, there was. Danny, you know, Grizzly was. He was he's, he, I've got to put him up to that in part of that group. And uh, that's the difference as a perspective as I see from today, you know, Mikey played two seasons like that. We put a harness on him and stuff like that. And he just kept playing because he did not want to miss playing. Well, I'm away from the game now. I don't see it, but you will see guys, you know, mid, midway through the season, having their shoulders done. And I'm going, are they, you know, what are they doing that? Why are they getting it done now? Why can't they wait to the end of the season? That's how I've seen it's changed. You know, you know, it's interesting. I think of, uh, and, and, you know, uh, Kenny always says, well, it may sound a bit, uh, you know, like he's fake. Kevin Lowe, it was ridiculous. And again, as an outsider, the guys inside the room would know more. But there were more guys. You mentioned Smitty. I remember that leak and ankle. It was so, it was still through the, as he was healing up, it would, a little, there'd be a little teardrop of blood there. And then they sucked us in. Because they had him in a no-contact jersey in the morning, and that night he came roaring out through the oil derrick like he had a booster rocket in his butt. And every, and we'd specifically asked about jerseys that day, and they lay, oh, no, I don't play when you got that jersey on. And out came Smitty that night. You bastards, you. You got oh, well, us, you know, they, they don't owe us an explanation. We thought they did. <laughs> and the other one is this. Was it Trent McCleary of the Montreal Canadiens who got hit in the throat with the slap shot? Yep. Not long after that, we were on the road. Igor Ulanov got hit in the throat in Columbus. It wasn't as bad, but it took him off for a couple shifts. A couple days later, our next game was in, I want to say, Madison Square Garden, and he took a puck between the eyes. And he didn't want to leave the bench. The officials had to tell him to go and go to the medical room. And he got, I think, 22 stitches uh in the eyebrow or between the eyes. Of course, he swelled up like the elephant man on the plane after the game. But at the time, we asked him, Igor, why didn't you just get off and go get fixed? My leg, it was not broken. He said, I can play. <laughs> he was another one of those guys who you go, man, that's like <laughs> tough. There, there, 
you know, I've always, though, I always said that you don't make it to professional sport without having some degree of toughness, okay? Because there will always be bumps and bruises that you got to play through. <clears throat> Brian Kelly, uh, you know, I used to, the day after game, I would see Brian come come in and go, oh, here he goes. What's he going to try to get over at me today? You know, because he <laughs> didn't want to go out there. He didn't want to go out the day after run. He didn't, Brian was just, but come game day, oh, yeah. it didn't matter what it was. You couldn't pull him off the field. And, and I think most professional athletes have that degree. They don't want to be on the bench. You want to be playing. And you have to have some degree of toughness. You don't get into the National Hockey League. You get, don't get into, into fo- professional football without having some degree of toughness. I, I learned a lot about lactic acid. And we often <laughs> used to joke about the bath of ice, or as it was referred to by some of the players, the bath of death, where guys would just submerse their lower half of their body. And it would get very, very cold. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would eat... Th- Ethan uh, Morrow was a classic example. He loved that. He didn't want to ride the bikes after the game. But guys would watch, and this thing had, like, icebergs on the water, on the top of the water. Like, it was ice cold. And guys would watch him go into the that room, and they would look, and they would watch. And as he sunk himself slowly in, guys would go, oh, I don't know how he does that. Ethan was another tough one. But you know what? To kind of take it over to Barry now, the toughest guy in that equipment area I always felt was Barry. But you did it with a smile on your face, my friend. You had to tell guys you can have that or you can have that, and you had to do it in a way that just seemed to pull everybody together. Did you ever feel it was tough that way? You know, I was talking to Mike Kruzelniski, well, maybe just a couple years ago, and we are having a beer after an event uh, when I was doing the alumni stuff, and, and... he says, yeah, you, you know, you, you really were a cheap bastard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and uh, it, it sort of took me back, and I, I thought, well, well, I'm not a cheap bastard. What do you mean? You're, you're talking, you know, I had a job to do. I mean, that wasn't me. I was, I was doing my job. Um, and it all goes back to the early days of uh, when I started. It was my, you know, I mean, I have 38 years with this company, and I was 28 in the dressing room. You know, I learned on the job. I, I had no experience, and my boss was Glenn Sather, and, you know, he was very clear to me early. Uh, and he was quite an intimidating guy, as you know, when I was a young guy. I think I was like 25 years old, right out of school. Um, you know, I, I expect you to have the lowest budget of any team in the NHL. And, okay, um, <laughs> fine, I, yeah, okay, so how am I going to do that? Well, I'd never, you know, worked in a professional organization. I, I'd never managed a budget, Um you know, I had to learn on the job. And so uh, I didn't know any other way. Um, you know, he's very, he was very uh, value conscious is what, what we like, like to say. Yeah. I, I didn't like it when people said he was cheap because he, he was very value conscious. But I think, uh, you know, through the process, we all learned about um, responsibility. And I learned about responsibility, that I was responsible to a budget. And I had to look him in the eye at the end of the year when I finished my budgets and to see where our, our expenses were. So I just had to come up with creative ways to try and get people to think about the fact that, um, you know, this stuff costs money. And, um, you know, we would never, and I don't think Glenn would ever hold back, and I know for a fact we, we, we would never hold back from what the players needed to, you know, because we're all teammates and we wanted to win. I mean, I'm not going to tell Wayne Gretzky he can't tape four sticks up. I mean, that's not my job as a trainer but uh, or as an equipment guy. I mean, back... 
back then we used to call ourselves trainers and the medical trainer and the equipment manager worked together as a team, uh, Peter Miller and myself and then Kenny and myself. It's a little bit more, um, there's, a, there's a little bit of a differentiation today. It's more along the football lines where you have a head equipment manager and you have a head medical trainer. There's no doubt. And each have their own responsibilities. And, and to some degree, they, they work together today as well. But back then, it was a, a tighter-knit group of people. Uh, and I guess what I, I'm getting at is that, um, you know, we, we, we learned about teaching responsibility to the players and that things did cost money. But uh, we had to come up with creative ways to, um, to, get, to, to get people to think about that. And, and uh, I mean, it was, it, was hard. it was challenging at a time. It really, really had to think about... Uh, I can, I can tell you one thing for sure that this that gentleman beside me he would give you the shirt off his back for anything and let, as long as it wasn't an Oilers shirt. Okay, <laughs> uh, you know he he's so honest. It's it's you know, and I'll, a little story. Kevin went to New York and I remember his first year coming back and he, Kevin had phoned me <clears throat> and he said, uh, "Can you come pick me up? Because uh, got quite a few bags with the kids and stuff like that." And, and his hockey bag came off, and a dozen sticks came off with it. And he looked at me, and he said, wouldn't Barry just shit? And I started laughing. <laughs> it's funny you should like say that. that, too, because I remember when Glenn had gone to New York and had come back, and the Rangers were here for their very first game. And I remember talking to Glenn, and he asked me, he says, well, in your community relations duties, what is your budget for golf shirts? And I said, why, why are you asking? Because... The budget for golf shirts with the New York Rangers was more than my entire budget for everything for the whole year. Because he said, you know what, you got to look after the guy in the parkade on Fifth Avenue. So you slide him a couple of shirts and you make sure you got the same spot. It, it, but Staffy, there's also the story, and I thought I'd heard them all. There's the story about the Laces and Kevin on uh, Hockey Night in Canada games that I heard for the very first time at our Toast of the Town. You want to say that one? Well... And you can say it word for word. This is podcasting because it made me laugh so hard when I heard that story. Well, it's it, everybody kind of knew that, you know, the core group of guys knew that. I mean, I would never, ever hold anything back from the, from the veteran players for sure. Like, I mean, these guys were my friends and they were, you know, contributing members of the team. And so I'm not... Like I said, I'm not telling Mark Messi you can't have a new pair of skates or Wayne Wayne or any of the guys, the veteran guys that have earned it. I mean, they can do whatever they want. Um, so, but as we progress through, um, you know, guys that always give me a hard time for being a cheap bastard, right? And I'm, I'm thinking, well, it's not me, man. It's my job. And I was really just trying to teach responsibility. And yeah, I was responsible to a budget too, but I mean... You know, it, it was more, uh, I think, tongue-in-cheek, and we had a lot of fun with it. So, you know, Kevin, is the, I think he was the captain at the time, or, you know, this, this is a real story about that. So every game, Kevin Lowe would change his skate laces. Every game. He had to break, you know, he would want a new pair of skate laces. Well, I don't give a shit about skate laces, really. I mean, what, what, they cost a buck fifty or something. It was just, it was irrelevant, but... So they get in a routine, and all these guys have routines, every single one of them, you know. And you get to, like I said, you're in a, you're in a room with these guys 24 hours a day almost. You get to know every little idiosyncrasy and personality and, you know. Um, so on a game day, you know, it's a serious day. Everybody's in their routine. Well, Kevin would change his laces every, every game, which is fine. I mean, he was a veteran player. He could do whatever he wanted. I don't care. I wouldn't say boo. But the funny part is they get kibitzing around and talking and yakking and he would take his laces uh, take the little uh, sleeve off the laces 
and throw them towards the garbage can, which was close to his. And, and they, they, you know, nine times out of ten, they'd fall on the floor. So I'd walk by. And, you know, we had an unwritten rule. Everybody took pride in the room. It was right. like their living room. Like, you know, like we, we all took pride in the room. <laughs> so I'd walk by, pick up the lace thing and throw it in the garbage. And, you know, players would never throw tape or anything on the floor. On It would be disrespectful. You know, they would they would walk over and pick it up and throw it in the garbage can. So, you know, and, you know, it was more like for fun. So he, he, about the third time, I go, well, p- put the bloody thing in the garbage. You got a bad shot. Like, hit the garbage can. It's right there. <laughs> so then I came up with this funny idea. So I took the the freaking sleeve that had the that held the laces together. And then, because he would change them every game. So I would go and take the laces that, that he was taking out of his skates to put new ones in, and I'd slowly sneak them away. Because he actually threw, it was not only the sleeve, but it would be the laces. He'd throw towards the garbage can, and they'd end up on the floor. So I, I grabbed the laces, and then I rewrapped them, and I put them in the frickin' uh, little sleeve. And, you know, because they were only used for one game, you could hardly tell. They were, like, brand new. They might have a little <laughs> mark here or there. So I kind of fastened them so that they fashioned them so that they looked real, and I put it real tight. And, and so... I started, there were 84 thin, like there's 50 different kinds of laces, but I knew, I still remember 84 thins or whatever. So I put the laces in his stall before he walked in. He was always the first guy in the room, four o'clock on a game day, clockwork. So he'd walk in and he saw these laces and he said, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Wow. I got a pair of laces in my stall. Like, you know, Barry's thinking ahead. That's really nice. So he would go through his ritual and take the laces out and... Put him in his skates and use them. And I was just pissing myself <laughs> laughing because, you know, he didn't realize until about the third game, the third time. It didn't last long. Holy shit, did he freaking give me give it to me. And we were laughing. It was more like a joke, right? It was fun. But but Huddy and uh, Coffee would be all over me. You tight bastard. You cheap son of a bitch. Like, you know. <laughs> How? What do you get a, you, what do you get a bonus for, uh, you know, for keeping the team under budget? Anyway, um, so it was a few, that was in the mid-season. So we get to Chicago, in uh, Chicago Stadium, and, and we're playing the uh, conference final. And intense as shit, and it was, you know, it's pretty cool, pretty special at that time of the year. So, But but that time in the dressing room before uh, the coach comes in, when everybody's kind of getting ready for the game, was kind of a fun time. It was, it's a cool time. That That's the time that Paul Coffey said he missed the most out of all the experiences that he had in hockey was that 15 or 20 minutes when the team was just in the room together right before the game started, before the coach came in. Because they were just they were just themselves. They were teammates. They were having fun. Anyway, so uh, I'm doing my deal. I'm walking around the room. Just got really nothing to do. The players are getting ready. I'm just there to help if they need something. And uh, I walk by the garbage can, and I see these freaking laces, brand new, hanging over the edge of the garbage can, just enough so I could see them. These guys know me. They... The back of their hand. They know my routines. I'm walking around. I see these laces. And I look back and I'm thinking, what the? Who is throwing out brand new goddamn laces? <laughs> so I look at the laces. I grab them out of the side of the garbage can. I slowly pull them out and I'm tugging on them. There's something on there. I pull them out. I pull them up. And there's a, there's a, there's a <laughs> sign that they made. And everybody's watching. I don't know. I'm just, Fuck you, chicken legs. Oh, my God. <laughs> Boy, we, 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 oh, it was so bloody funny. Jeez, it was funny. You know, we just had, the whole team was in tears laughing. 
anyway, it was that was just kind of a simple example of how we we kind of they they pushed the envelope on the budgeting thing. But really, you know, when it came down to it, uh, it was just about responsibility, and it it it, it kind of carried over a little bit more as as the, the core team, the, the dynasty team left and. Everybody softens their stance and start to realize that, you know, budgets aren't the only thing. They never were really the only thing. But uh, it was just more about say, saying, hey, guys, you know, just yeah, be responsible. Yep. You know, I'll always remember those staffy Brendan Shanahan and his three sticks. It, it, to this day, I can still see him and he's staring at me and he tapes up three sticks every game, whether you use them or not. And who was this? This was Brendan Shanahan. And, that, and then when was that? One with Team Canada. Gotcha. And, uh, and this was back when we were at the World Cup. And I'm looking at him, and he's got to tape up three sticks all the time. And I guess coming from Detroit, when he, where he was coming from, it taped up three sticks, not a big thing. And, and I'm, I'm listening to Barry talk to him. And, and I looked at him, I said, Brandon, you shan't three sticks all the time? He says, yeah. Well, what about the two ones you taped up the day before? He says, well, Kenny, I can't use them. Why can't you use them? He says, well... How do you think they feel? They stood there the whole game, never got used, you know? And, and am I going to use them now? And I'm looking at him, and I'm trying to figure, is he serious? Or is he not serious? Or I'm stupid or what? And he turned around, and he walked away. To this day, I don't know if he was serious or not, but he taped up three new sticks every game, you know? And he goes, what the, I could figure the job that poor staff he had to do. Like, wow. oh, my God, <laughs> you know? One thing that sticks with me, well, there, there's a lot, but... Speaking of uh, Barry, you had so many characters over the years. You got to know all the idiosyncrasies of the players, as would Ken. The one thing I remember, uh, you know, beyond that 89 season, because that was my time frame around the team, Yanni Ninema. I lost track of the number of times I'd hear, Staffy, Staffy. It always seemed like Yanni needed... Something adjusted, something wasn't quite right. The seam was chafing his butt, or whatever it was. Were there guys like that who were just especially particular about every single piece of their gear, Barry? <clears throat> I'm so glad you brought up Yanni Nino. <laughs> <laughs> oh my good lord! Um, oh, there's a lot of players that were particular. Most are particular, but. Some are, are what we call special, and I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> Stu Poirier, our um, uh, massage therapist, great friend and you know, great massage therapist, probably the best in the business for a lot of years, worked in not only with the Oilers, but on a lot of Team Canada's with us. Um, he, he nicknamed Yanni Neenum a 911. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, everybody in hockey has a nickname, as you know. Yep. Uh, and it was probably the most fitting nickname of all. Um, I will tell you that uh, Yanni Ninamo was a horse as a player. Oh, yeah that, yeah. that guy was a solid, solid player. Tough, big, physical, moved the puck. Um, you can really depend on him. And he, he, for a lot of years, he was a good player in our team. But I'll tell you what, behind the scenes, uh, 9-1-1 is, is, is a perfect example of uh, probably daily there would be Issues with Yanni Ninema. And, you know, after a while, player, the rest of the team and the players and the staff just kind of roll their eyes. 
But uh, one of the big things with Yanni, and I'll kind of go, I I have, we could have a whole podcast about Yanni. I love the guy, trust me. I love him. He's a great guy. He's actually working in media right now and in Finland and doing a great job. He's he's come to Brent Sakes games. Yes, you know yeah. many times to support Brandon and even hockey game. Th- those guys. Those guys there could tell you some funny stories about him too. But uh, the big thing for Yanni was uh, time, like and, and being late for practice and late. So in hockey, it's an unwritten rule if you're if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. I mean, use a little discretion there, but basically that's the way it is. If you that, was Mac, if, T- that if, was Mac T's rule, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even even back to the days of Glenn Sather, if you're not if you're not on that bus ten minutes before it goes, you're late. So, <clears throat> Yanni Ninema had this thing in his mind: if practice is eleven o'clock, he's wa- he's going to skate on the ice at ten seconds to eleven o'clock every like, time. Like like every time, and you know, most of the players would be on half an hour early, fifteen minutes early. They've done their warm up. They get on the ice, but when the coach Starts practice at 11. He's like, you better be ready. Like, he'd skate onto the ace at 11 o'clock. Well, for about, you know, two weeks when he first came to the team, we used to have these, these uh, the coaches started to get on us, get on him. Like, you're late. No, 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 I'm not late. No, 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 Yanni, you're late. Wake up. Be if, you know, to the point where, and that's where guys like Kenny and I and Spark to some extent would, would you know, we, he tried to keep the uh, keep the peace and actually help some of these young guys out once in a while to say, "Look, uh, Yanni, listen to what they're saying. Like, come in a little bit. Or no, no, I'm not late. You know, like, okay, I'm telling you, you're late. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Smarten up. Um, you know, it's beyond a joke. Now he wouldn't get it. He wouldn't listen. He didn't care. He was hard headed. And um, eventually, I hate to say it, but that was one of the reasons that it was the, the demise of Yanni Ninema. But uh, uh, the other is like I could tell you funny stories about. Uh, well, one time I forget exactly what city we're at, but he he was trying to, you know, once again late getting on the ice, and this was for uh, for a game. Um, you know, everybody's got their got their equipment on; they're all ready to go. They're lined up. He's he doesn't even have a sweater on. He's just tying his skates up, and the boys are getting ready to go out in the ice, and it's a a serious routine. While they're yelling at him, they're pushing him. We're giving him a push. So finally he gets his stuff on. He grabs a sweater. Uh, he's trying to put his sweater on just as he's going out the door <laughs> yeah. into the hallway to get on the ice. And uh, he's yelling, Staffy, Staffy, and he's looking for help and trying to get his sweater on. Everybody's laughing. Well, he's got a bloody uh, coat hanger still stuck in his sweater, and it's sticking out sideways. And it's like... <laughs> got to be more we, thorough than that. We, we just, you know, you just shake your head. and um, But you know what? <laughs> There was always something going on with Yanni Nima, always. Now, in you know, terms when, of... When when Yanni got traded, and I always remember that he got traded, we were in Calgary. Yes. And he got traded the Islanders, okay? And the players stood around, sat, excuse me, stood around. They sat around and talked for an hour. The Yanniisms, what yep. Yanni did. Remember the time yeah. Yanni did this. Remember the time Yanni did that. And the biggest story that I'll always remember is the time Yanni in the playoffs fell what was late for the, for the bus, and he was convinced he was totally convinced that Colorado had drugged him. Okay, <laughs> and as much as we tried to convince him, how could they drug the, just you, not the whole team? And if you remember, Staffy, okay, 
Stilatz had to go out and find him some chew and because because his whole afternoon was thrown off and and Dr. Reed was with us and she was trying to find some sugar tablets that would take away the you know I'm standing there I'm going but <laughs> but serious Yanni why and how would they simply do no he was convinced that Colorado drugged him a special guy though and a good oh guy. yeah terrific a, a lot guy. of fun a lot of fun but uh, and the fact yeah. we're talking about him is it just no. says he's left a huge mark on on all of us and kenny the peculiarities of of maybe the way guys looked at things in the equipment room that would come over into the medical room too because you you oh. had the traditional guys that would be early the last guy out but sometimes guys would come in and ask for the craziest things um when you start going back to no there wasn't i mean they guys and I think Bill Twilley always said it. They, they weren't super. They were, weren't superstitious at all. They were ritualistic. Yes, they had their routines. Okay, and you accept them. My brother and the shoe, skate laces. To him, the skate laces were tighter when they were new. Uh, they, they all had these these these, these different rituals. Uh, um, but that, you know, when it came to my area, it was injury, and then we got. What's different, okay? We didn't get into rituals or being superstitious. Just could you play, can't you play, you know? And that was the thing difference from my area. But first guy in, first first guy in seemed to be Kevin a lot. Yeah. Uh, last guy out always, do you remember? Who was always the last out of the medical room? Was there one guy always kind of hung around a little bit and was... Jason Smith was first in from in, in those days when he played. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Smitty, I, I used to always say if Smitty... if. Smitty asked to see the doc. I would call nine one one, you know, because he never, <laughs> he, he never, he played with everything, and Kevin was a lot like that, like luck, like too, like too. You know, it was a lot. So I go back and say you have to play with that, with that, those bumps and bruises. There's a great picture. I've still got it uh, of Jason Smith. We are down at the at, at the time it was called the Altel Ice Den. We were in Phoenix. Um, Kenny and his crew had wrapped up Gator. I've got a picture of him sitting on a chair. Yep. He's got one foot in the ice bucket. He's got seven different ice bags uh, bound to his body with the blue, uh, you know, the stretch, the stretchy stuff. And he's sitting there in the sun with a big smile on back. his face. It's like, catch a few rays, let the muscles heal. Did... Between Kevin and, and, and Jason Smith in a in a basically a different era, did anybody pack more ice than those two guys in, out of that uh, training room during your time there? Smitty was right up there, you know, but, but Smitty was the one who, you know, we were talking about that at the Hall of Fame, and with the things that we were together with, he broke his, you know, he broke his jaw, he broke his, broke his ankle, he, dis- he separated his finger, finger, he... Uh, dislocated his shoulder. He uh, MCL third degree MCL. I mean, we spent a lot of time with with Smitty. But you we know can what? rebuild him exactly. You know, and but he he was there all the time. When we talk about Smitty, everyone's got a nickname. That was Ryan Smith. Yeah, you know, he was he was tough. So uh, yeah, I, I go back and I have to look at the players and stuff to see. Like you brought up Mikey Greer, and I went. Oh, or if, how can you forget Mike Geary? How about little Toddy Marchand? Another yeah. tough you guy. Know, you, you know, you, you had a lot of these guys that had to play that way, and, that, and they knew that. I think in, in Gator, Jason Smith's perspective, he knew 
his game was a physical game. He, he knew that to stay in the National Hockey League, that's what he had to do, and he, he couldn't be he couldn't be hurt. Before we ask you what you're doing now, I want and with the Hall of Fame careers that you guys have had, is there one thing that sticks out more than anything? One achievement is it a Stanley Cup? Is it a a gold medal at any of the events that you guys have gone to. Is there one thing or is it just all blend together? I don't even know who I want to start with. Who wants to pick that one up right off the top? Is there one thing where you go, I don't think I can ever top that? I'll speak first because I think they all blend together. Okay. To me. Okay. Because they were, you know, you just, one thing I always said about the difference to me in between football and hockey, you got to rejoice your wins. Okay, in hockey you don't. Okay, especially in the playoffs, you want to get playoff game. Yay! Next day you're back in it. Yeah. Okay. In football, you you had a couple days to rejoice. Okay, before you got back at it and and start over again. Uh, so I say they all seem to blend. But one of my biggest and I want accomplishments or thrills, more of my biggest thrills, was getting an invitation to Warren Moon's induction into the mm. National Football League really? Hall of Fame. Yep. And I only had Warren for four years, and that's years later. And I, to this day, uh, I cherish that so much. And I want to just go on a little bit further than that. Why he even cherishes it so much is that I had kept the invite, and unfortunately I couldn't go because the family was 206, and we were going to Europe to celebrate. And, and that was the same day we were flying to Europe. And uh, I kept the invitation for years, okay? Uh, and I was going to do something with it, you know, typical. I got And typically, by the time I figure out to do something, I've lost it, okay? And the reason I re remembered it is I go into my good friend, Dwayne Mandruzziak's office, and he has an invite also. And he has taken that invite and he's had it done framed in different sequences. Yep. And I said, Jesus, Dwayne, I wanted to do that. Darn it, you know. But typical me, I went and lost it. And he says, Kenny, I got a copy of that. He, I said, you sure? I said, I got a copy. I'll get one done. I said, please get it done. And even get, I'll pay anything for it. A couple months later, I'm down there and, and I'm walking out. And he says, oh, Kenny, he says, I got something for you. And he runs down and he gets me the framed picture. And he brings it to me. And I said, you know, how much do I owe Dwayne? He said, no, no, that's from me. I said, you are such a good friend. A month later, I'm back there again. I'm looking at his office. I go, his picture's gone. The Warren Moon framed picture. You're kidding. Signed. I said, Dwayne, where is your picture? He goes, oh, I took it home. I said, you took it home? Where'd you, where'd you put it at home? Well, it's in my basement right now. I said, I'm going to phone Allison. I'm going to phone Allison. You little bugger. You gave me his. And he had a little smile came on his face. I said, you gave me his. That shows you the relationship we guys we had all wow. throughout the, you know. Well, yeah, that's special, huh? Yeah, he's and, a special person. And Staffy, with you, man, uh, the accomplishments. I think Wayne Gretzky. I think the night of his banner raising in the green room, and you had walked by, and Wayne said, "There's, he's got to be the most accomplished Edmonton Oiler in terms of." everything you had won through your career doing what you did with the Edmonton Oilers, and that's coming from Wayne. Is there one thing that kind of sticks out for you, or is it, as Ken said, it's just such a blur and there's so many great memories? Well, there is one thing. And, you know, keeping everything in perspective, when you think about, face it, I'm a lucky guy in a lot of ways. I came along at a good time. Um, 
You know, I, I just happened to be like almost the perfect storm. But because of the success of the Oilers and the, and the Cup teams, uh, that led to all the Canada Cups. And, you know, I think I, I was part of, um, you know, as a, a teammate, a training staff, support staff member of probably, four, I don't know, 13 or 14 championship teams, including, you know, I mean, but it, it, all, those th- all those things do blend together. And they, they, I, don't, I don't take it for granted. Uh, don't don't take five Stanley Cup championships for granted. Trust me. I mean, but I do have a hard time sort of differentiate from one, you know one from the other. I'm getting to be an old bastard here, but but the one thing I will say that that really had a, a solid influence in my life and probably helped me, uh, you know, that I kind of uh, had had a big influence on what I did moving forward was was uh, May nineteenth, nineteen eighty four. Um, that's that's the Oilers' first Stanley Cup in in uh Rexall place you know i stood on that little corner of the bench um i was only that was my second year in the nhl i worked in the minors one year so you know i was under contract i wasn't really working for the team directly so in my first my first year in the nhl we went to the stanley cup final and lost the second year we won the cup i mean i i was new to the team i was just a a fringe part of the team i think at that time but like any kid in canada any any hockey playing person whether you're a coach, a trainer, um, you know, of course, the players, managers. I mean, your, your goal in hockey is to is to be on a Stanley Cup championship. Um, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that, any, any young Canadian guy or hockey player. Um, and I always wanted to be a hockey player. I always, you know, hockey was my life even to that point. And I was just happy to contribute as part of the staff, the training staff. But I, I was standing on that bench in that little corner, and I've said for years, you know, I had the best seat in the house for how many years, you know. And I'll never, ever forget that that feeling. And, um, you know, it just, it, it, it's overwhelming. Uh, and it's, it's had a huge influence, probably the, the, in, in my professional life, and I was fortunate to work only for one company for all these years, but in, in, in my professional life, that was probably something that I'll, I'll never, ever forget. And even though I had many other um, experiences like that, you know, winning winning championship, that probably had the biggest impact on my life. We, we've only got a couple of minutes here, so let's quickly talk about what you're doing now, and we'll start with you, Ken. What are you doing, just chilling, relaxing? Do you like to keep busy? I know you do. Uh, uh, I'm retired. I've been retired now for uh, Peter Sorelli made sure of that. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, but it was the right time, the right place to be. So, so, uh, and you keep him busy though. Yes, uh, as of last night was the first night that uh, I was behind the bench for the uh, SSAC Midget AAA hockey team. They they need a trainer for the rest of the season, uh, so I'm going to do it. You know, you know. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, you know, it uh, three years ago I got a call from Paul Coffey. I'll never forget that. And and. Uh, he asked me the question. He said, "Did you uh, has your brother talked to you yet?" And I said, "No. Why would my brother talk to me?" I was afraid. He said, "Well, I'm coming to town, and, I'm, and he's leading me into something." And I say, "What are you getting at, Paul?" He says, "Well, we're coming to town for a tournament, hockey tournament." And I go, mm-hmm. "He says we need a trainer," and I'm going, "Seriously, Paul? Seriously?" He goes, "No, no, we do. Really, it's a John Reed Memorial. I still don't know what the John Reed Memorial is." And uh, he says, seriously, we, we, we need a trainer. Our trainer can't come. I went, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, um, uh, mid- Bantam hockey, when I played Bantam hockey, you 
play three 15-minute periods. The last five minutes of the third period was stop. Okay, so what? Be an hour. Okay, sure, I'll, 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 I'll do it. I want to ask Kev. I say, Look, you mind? He said, ah, now go. I get there first game. I don't realize now it's all three periods, 20, stop. Okay, we're doing the ice in between. It's a two-hour time slot, okay? We had games, two games on Saturday, two games on fr fr uh, Friday, one game on Saturday, and we won the... The tournament following days, this is the Johnny Reed Memorial Tournament. So I, I was so excited to see these kids, and, and I mean kids, they're kids, how big, how strong, how fast they were. So I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking forward to uh, to, to uh, working with these, these kids. I, our record's not too good right now. We're 0-14-3, and three, so. Oh. <laughs> Keep having some fun, though, with it. I think we'll have fun with it, exactly. And Staffy, multiple myeloma. You want to get into that? Well, it's been a tough one for you, but man, you uh, you're battling hard. Well, once again, keeping things in context, I I um, you know training staff as a whole generally are, are blue collar workers, and we worked in a white collar world. And I, you know, I came along at a, as did Kenny at a, at a great time in the history of, of our organization, and um, but it's a, it's a um, we're behind the scenes guys. We're behind the scenes guys, and that's where we're comfortable. And we work uh, in an environment where we're very close to the media as well. As we know, most of our the media members of this, you know, kind of work the same hours, long hours. Uh, I would say low pay, but uh, I mean that's that you know that's all relative. Got them that, fooled. That's not, yeah, that's not an issue. But <laughs> but, that, but what I'm saying is we had a lot in common with the media. It's a behind the scenes job in a public business, and we don't. You know, we're not in the public, and we're not public figures, and we, we there's no need for us to be public figures. But because of that, um, you know, we put our nose down, go to work. We don't uh, get too caught up in all the uh, publicity of what goes on publicly in the world. Uh, and it wasn't uh, until I left the training business that um, after a couple of jobs, the last job I had was, was a great job working for the alumni. And, uh, you know, a job that I guess one of my colleagues said, you have auditioned this, for this job your entire life. You get to work with all these great people. And that, that was the thing for me. I got to, I, I still do, I have an association with a lot of great people in the Oilers organization, a lot of the, for, the, the former players. But because of the alumni and because of, which I hadn't spent a lot of time with and I hadn't, didn't understand how, how the concept of, of all these charities work and, and, and the amount of time and effort that these guys put into helping other people. Uh, that it's really opened my eyes up to um, the importance of giving back, which a lot of our players do that people, you know, behind the scenes aren't even aware of. Uh, they, they, almost every player has given a lot of their time to, to help other people and charities. I ran into a bit of a tough go there, um, um, you know, probably in 2011, <clears throat> I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma out of the, out of the blue, something I'd never even heard of. I don't want to get into details, but the fact is it was a private thing, and I, I, I didn't really, I kept it very private. We, we just dealt with it in our family and our close friends. And it wasn't until I got involved with the alumni group, um, especially with Glenn Anderson, um, who's around quite a bit, and some of the guys that were contributing to our, our appearances, that uh, I got involved with the Cross Cancer Institute, which um, I've spent many, many, many hours in the cross, and uh you know, thanks to the cross, the doctors, the researchers, I'm eight years now in remission, and uh, knock on wood, that's going to continue. But um, 
I, I, I'm involved right now, in a, uh, which I spend a lot of my time with. Besides spending time with my family, uh, my mo- mother is 86 years old. I'm driving to Banff today to go celebrate with her. I've, I've had time to spend uh, with, our, with my family and my close friends. And my, but, but I have a passion for helping people with multiple myeloma, and it's, I, I just feel obligated to do that because I am so lucky that I have a, a healthy life right now. Um, I'm involved with the Cure Cancer Foundation. It's a brand new foundation. Um, it's a group of passionate people that really care about um, helping people um, who have been living in a world of cancer, and we're, we're, we're all touched by cancer at some point. I don't want to get on my soapbox here, but um, it's a great group of people that are um, pillars of the community, successful business people, and uh, they, they, they give their efforts on a voluntary basis to, to help people with cancer. I was lucky that we, we had a Toast of the Town event last year. Uh, Bryn, Bryn uh, was very helpful in that uh, part of our committee. I've worked with uh, Hockey Helps the Homeless, with, with Ronnie Lowe, and Robin is a big part of that. So charity work is a big part of what I like to do. And I, I, uh, We are working right now on the Toast of the Town event. We have a prominent Edmonton Oiler uh, that we are going to honor this year. Uh, there's going to be a public announcement made in, in early uh, January. Um, you don't want to say anything about that now, do you? No, I don't. Good for you. Um, but what I will say, what I will say <laughs> is one of my closest friends and colleagues in the business, his name is Brian Anstice. He's, he's also in remission from, uh, he was a former um, uh, owner, um, general manager of uh, Prison Flow Products, just a great guy, hardworking, dedicated person, family man. Uh, he came up with a slogan that we, we use as our, our slogan today for, for the Cure Cancer Foundation, specifically the toast of the town, which is, you know, the decisions you make today save lives tomorrow. And I can, I can guarantee and I know for a fact that we have saved lives and we're going to continue to save lives for many years down the road. When we get closer on that, we'll uh, we'll we'll have you back on, and we'll uh, go into depth. and And the special person who will be toasted will have to get on this podcast as well. Okay, we'll just kind of leave it at that. We're out of time. You want to go first? Uh, let me go first, and then you can just wrap this up. Sure. The time I spent with you guys working behind the scenes, it was one thing to be in the media, but to spend those four and a half years with you guys was very special time for me. I thank you for that. And, uh, and I learned a lot. Man, did I learn a lot being able to go behind the curtain a little bit. So I want to thank you guys for coming in today. Robin sees it from a different perspective, from a media perspective, and the media always loved working with you guys. Well, I first walked in uh, to uh, Rexall in, when I got here in December of 89, right off the plane. I followed Jim Matheson into the rink uh, at that time. I left the beat uh, in 2007 after nine straight seasons covering the team as the beat guy, both at the Sun and the Journal. Uh, Ken Lowe, uh, Barry Stafford, watch them and others. There's there's many that make the machine go behind the scenes. Was always amazed at the hours they put in. Always amazed that they understood. Uh, that the players were in the spotlight and they just made it work. I've always had uh, a great admiration uh, for the both of you, actually for everybody in the profession that does the heavy lifting behind the scenes. And uh, now that we're 
uh, years have gone by quickly and that we're all kind of retired. Um, there's still more to come, but I will never forget those watching you guys work. Uh, I'm proud to know you. That's all I can say right now. And, and just before you jump in here, and I know you guys want to, two quick comments. Sparky was another guy we had I, so much fun I with. Just, yep. I was just going to say we we can't we cannot we cannot Sparky. He's, <laughs> he, he was he was the one who educated our players and and we saw what what the education was sometimes. But uh, yeah, there's a very 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 special spot for him and Joey and Joey yes and Joey and <sighs> Daryl Duke and oh, all the guys that, you know you're right all the guys that went through. There's a picture of you guys standing out on the ice that I keep. Uh, in my computer. I scour the internet for this stuff. If I didn't see it when it was first taken, I'll find it. And you look at those faces and some of them are gone now and you realize how quickly the time moves. Yeah. And, uh, I think you grab each day. Uh, I think you learn this too late in life, grab each day and enjoy it because we're not guaranteed anything. And there's been a lot of good days so far, hopefully more. And Staffy, I interrupted you. You were going to say, well, we, we, we were all thinking about Sparky uh, <laughs> when Robin was talking there. I mean, Lyle was a, Lyle Sparky Kolchiski. He's he's a hockey he's a legend. legend. He's yep. a hockey he's a legend. And you know what? He was as big a part of our of our team, training staff team, and of the Oilers organization uh, as any guy in that room. And he's a close, close friend of some of the greatest players that mm -hmm. ever played in staff, including Wayne and Mark and all of us. I mean, he. Uh, we we see Sparky regularly. He's doing really well, and he's a, he's a big part of our our team. You know, Rob, I I I take a look now and say, and I do. I say I've been very fortunate. I was in the right place at the right time. It was in great cups, Stanley Cups, World Championships, Olympics, and the thing that I take from that is the friendships that I developed with Dwayne Mandrusiak, yeah, Barry Stafford, yeah, Sparky. With our very close friend, and everyone knows Red, Gordon Batty, who's in the hospital in, in Green Bay after suffering a heart attack, Peter Miller. Those those people are the closest part of my life besides my family. And there's no, all the cups in the world, they don't mean anything that all those people mean. That's what it's all about. We could have gone for another hour. Our paths are always going to cross, and there's always a special friendship. And uh, thanks for coming in today. Oh, our pleasure. It's our been pleasure. a lot of fun. Yep. A lot of fun. Thanks, fellas. Big thank you to Ken Lowe and Barry Stafford for dropping into the studio to share some stories. That was a blast today. Really enjoyed it. Could you not shoot the shit with those guys all day long? You could. We have. <laughs> Actually, we have. Over a horrible cup of coffee, I'm sure that was served up in the Oiler locker room back in the day when you had that one blend, not the 20,000 blends you have now. It was that one blend that just tasted the same every day. But you know what? We liked it. It was the company. Exactly. That uh, That's exactly correct. So thanks to the boys for showing up today. We do appreciate that. And uh, a couple of things. You can email us at mightymouth at shaw.ca. Uh, that's how you can reach us with your feedback. We would love to hear from you. And also make sure you tell your friends and subscribe or hit the RSS button on your feed to uh, make sure that you get our podcasts quickly and weekly when we uh, pump them out for you. It'll, uh, it'll be fun. And, and the feedback we've been getting has been great. And I'm really looking forward to the upcoming new year and some of the guests that we're going to have. 
That's it, Robin. See you next time, man. Yeah, I know. Are you all talked out? You all tired after all that? No, I got plenty more to say. Well, we'll say it again next week, so please make sure you join us, okay? Thanks. Recording was recorded earlier because we were ashamed to do it now.